Okay, brothers and sisters, invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and um, and I want to begin with a word of prayer, uh, kind of what I alluded to a little bit ago uh, during, uh, it was while we were taking the Lord's Supper, is I would like to pray for the churches across uh, the world that are gathering together today that are experiencing persecution. And, um, I mean, many of you probably saw the video. Uh, I think it went out in the email, some info about, like, the churches in Canada. Who saw the video of the church, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? For those of you who didn't know, it doesn't look like there's many. Like, they actually put fences up around the church, like double-walled fences. And, uh, I mean, it seems like, you know, East Berlin kind of stuff when you look at it, and you're like, what in the world? Um, uh, but uh, so just pray for brothers and sisters. I don't know what's going on there. If they decided, I think the church still was deciding to show up and meet and they're probably just going to meet out in the field or something or the parking lot next to it. I don't know. Um, but just pray for uh, churches all over that are experiencing this kind of and that is persecution, by the way. That's not just because like they're not being chased and flogged with sticks or something like that. They're, they're being persecuted as a church. And this has been made clear multiple times because similar types of gatherings and stuff are totally permitted. So it, it seems clearly targeted in my mind. Uh, if you, you know, want to disagree with me and give me some evidence to the contrary, I'd be glad to hear it. But it's clearly, it's clearly in my mind, persecution against Christians targeted and coming from highest levels of authority, which is... Um, it's not a strange thing. We should not be expecting anything different than that. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into our passage today, and actually passages today. Heavenly Father, we um, want to uh, come now and intercede on behalf of the people all over the world that are experiencing the, the believers, saints, the Christians who are gathering, um, or who have gathered this morning, if, are gathering now or will gather soon. God, we pray that you uh, would give them boldness, courage, um, faith, diligence, and perseverance that they would continue to get together, meet together as you call us to do, that they do not fall, um, like the writer of Hebrews says, into the habit of some and neglect getting together. But God, we pray that as they are able and um, uh, that they can come to worship you. And God, I pray that they, um, as they're experiencing persecution, you would give them boldness um, to live according to the truth, uh, to not live by uh, lies, and that they would uh, be nourished in their fellowship and time uh, with one another. And um, God, we know you are using these events for your glory and to grow your people in your church. And so, God, we ask that you would do that. And Father, we pray as we turn to your word that as we look at this next passage in First Peter and some of the others, uh, that you would equip us with what we need. You give us the eyes to see, ears to hear, and that we would have hearts that would be receptive to take the seed of your word and to bear much fruit. And so, God, we ask you do that. Uh, here with us in these next few moments. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And then if you have um, 
you know, a bookmark or a ribbon or something like that, piece of paper that you can leave that spot. There's a couple of other passages I'd like you to turn to as well. And the uh, second one would be Ephesians chapter 6. You can kind of keep your finger there. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6. And then uh, lastly, if you would kind of put some marker. I know I've given you more verses than you have ribbons probably. Um, but the next one would be in Ephesians, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 52 or 53. Isaiah 52 and 53. We'll come to that passage a little later. But our scripture reading this morning will be in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 6. So here's the reading. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now Ephesians chapter 6. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Uh, it's verse 5, I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And now 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. First Timothy chapter six, the first two verses, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. So Peter is now entered into a very practical section of his letter. The beginning, uh, we've seen that he's, you know, talking to them about the calling that they have received, uh, that they are born again, 
very kind of doctrinal matters. And he now kind of makes a little bit of a turn here in chapter 2 to address some very practical things about how to live as he said often in this letter, just strangers and exiles, you know, sojourners and aliens, those kind of things. So how do we live as we're citizens of a kingdom of heaven, how we live down here? And he first addressed this by talking to them about how they need to live as good citizens, as good earthly citizens. We saw this at the beginning of, uh, or in the middle of chapter 2, the immediate passage, beginning in verse 13, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he's talking about this is how you live in the big picture, how we live in society in relationship to the governments. Okay. Then he now, uh, uh, next, I should say, next he transitions to talking about now the smallest uh, unit, and that's his unit as, as families centering around husbands and wives. So you see in chapter three, he talks about uh, wives, and then he likewise in verse seven, he gets to the issue of husbands. So how do we live in the big picture? How do we live as citizens in, in our society in relationship to our government? Now he goes to the smallest uh, unit of society, the institution, like the marriage that forms the basis of family. In between those, he's now talking to them about how we can live as and I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit. How we live as good servant employees serving our employers. Okay, now where do you get employees and employer from this passage? Well, this is what I want to unpack a little bit. Notice verse 18. He begins by saying, servants, be subject with, to your masters with all respect. Okay. The Greek word here for servant is um, where we get, the, it just means a member of the household. Now, um, households in the Greco-Roman ancient world would not just be like what we think of households, which is just, you know, a mom and a dad and then their children. Um, the household has kind of had a larger scope, especially if you owned property or land and those kinds of things where you would bring in kind of hired hands, they would kind of be considered a part of your larger picture household. And so this is the term that's related to that. It's uh, oiketes, oiketes, okay? And it gets translated in different ways, servants or uh, house servant or house slave, or um, uh, you get the idea, just kind of like a servant of the house. The second passage that we read today uses the term bond servants. Did anybody catch that? Okay, that's a different Greek word, but it's usually translated either either as a servant, or it's also the term for for a slave. Um, but this kind of raises a, a question that you've probably heard some skeptics who are critical of the Bible. They would say things like this: Well, doesn't the Bible affirm slavery? Have you heard? Have you heard those kinds of accusations, right? And it's understandable because when you read these terms in the 20th or 21st century, what lens do you think of when you see this term, looking back through history? It's kind of difficult here in an American setting to not think of, um, of the African chattel slavery and slave trade, the African slave trade. And so whenever we see that term, slave we we think oh no what what is going on here did they do these sorts of things in the ancient world 
Today, before we get kind of into unpacking a lot of this, I wanted to explain clearly the slavery in the, old, in the Bible times, Old Testament and New Testament, very much in the New Testament, was not the same as the African chattel slavery that we experienced in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th century in America. It's not, not exactly the same thing. They're quite a bit different. Um, there, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, there were a lots of different ways that you could become a slave. Sometimes it would be somewhat involuntary. Maybe you were, um, you were born uh, as a person who was a slave and, you know, as, who, uh, as a servant of somebody's household, and you were a child of that, and that's kind of was your strata in society. Um, other times you would sell yourself into slavery. So maybe you had a great deal of debt. And so what you would do is go to, and again, they didn't have employee rules like we do here in the United States. You would offer yourself to uh, a patron or a landowner or a master, they would be called. And you would offer them yourself to them so that you could work. And they would kind of pay your debt so that you wouldn't have to go to jail. But then you would work for them as paying it back. Right. And you could obtain your freedom as a slave. It wasn't like uh, the African chattel slavery where they just based on the color of your skin and from Africa, you were a lower citizen. It wasn't necessarily like that. You had Romans who could be slaves. You had uh, Jews who could be slaves. You had people from every strata of society that could that could have because of circumstances become a slave. So that's what we need to keep in mind as we see these terms, slaves and bondservants. It's not, not exactly the same thing, quite a bit different. So that's why some translations will translate it slaves. Some will say, well, they're a servant in the house, but it's a bond. They're made like kind of this contractual agreement with the master that, and that their debt was going to be paid back this way. Okay, so much different. Here's a, here's a note um, that I think explains kind of well. These terms... Okay, slave, bond, servant, and the term that's used uh, in, by Peter in this passage, um, they actually cover a range of relationships that require a range of renderings, either slave, bond, servant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave uh, carries associations often uh, with brutal and dehumanizing institutions of slavery in 19th century America. But that is uh, much different in the ancient, uh, in the ancient world. It's much closer to an employer-employee relationship. Okay? If you were to chart it on a spectrum, uh, the biblical slave-master relationship was far closer to employer-employee relationship. And there even were Roman laws on how you could treat slaves. You were not in, uh, entitled to be abusive in those kinds of things to them. Okay? So... So I often like to think of it more like, uh, how many of you have seen like Downton Abbey, right? So you'd have the, what's this title of the, the abbey or the manor that they're a part of? They're the Lord, right? How do they address them? You know, yes, yes, my Lord, and those kinds of things. And you would have servants who are part of the house. Think a little bit more like that in the biblical world. Not that there wouldn't be mistreatment, because that's what Peter's going to deal with here. And Paul does in these passages as well. Not that there couldn't be mistreatment. But attempt to remove the lens of the uh, American slave uh, trade. It didn't necessarily mean that they were uh, corrupt, by the way, that masters were corrupt. 
The term that Peter uses here for masters, I thought was very interesting. Um, I thought, well, let me look and see how this term is used for masters. Does it, it's, it's, uh, it's where we get the word despot, which, which usually for us has very kind of evil connotations, but it just meant kind of Lord or a master or supreme um, person. Doesn't necessarily ca- carry the idea of mean or evil corrupt because the early church uh, in a couple of their prayers addressed God as despot in Acts chapter four. It says when they heard Peter and John uh, came out of their, in their short little brief jail time there, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, it's the same word that's used here. Okay, so it doesn't carry necessarily that idea. So just having established that, now let's look at this, this passage and um, see what we can learn about being a Christ-like employee or principles for dealing with the difficult employers. Okay, here's the first one. Be a good employee or worker. That's just the flat out command here in 2 Peter verse 18. 2 Peter 2 verse 18. Servants, he addresses, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters. So even though you might have freedom in Christ having become a Christian. And that. Uh, becoming a Christian puts you on the same level playing field with uh, another believer who's a Christian who might be your master. In God's perspective, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, right? They're saying that in God's perspective, all believers are one. Which is what Peter, or excuse me, Paul is, uh, is pointing out in the Ephesians 6 passage. When he says, remember, you know, these are you're working for these masters and you're not just serving them because they're your brother. You're serving them because you because the Lord you're serving the Lord because he's the Lord of you both. And in also first Timothy, chapter six, verse two, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. He's saying, okay, now I've been saying to you that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He goes, but however, remember that as you're in society, you still are under that employer-employee relationship. And so remember and be respectful of those uh, ways of authority that the Lord has established. You you catch what what I'm saying here. So be a good employee. Becoming a Christian, being a member of this, the kingdom of God, does not enable you to say, um, well, I'm just going to throw it off. He's, he's lost and I don't need to follow him. Or, oh, even though, uh, why should I follow this earthly master, even though we both go to the same church? Uh, because we're all one in Christ and live in a kind of rebellious way. Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not it. You be a, you be a good employee. You subject yourself to your masters. And this... These institutional dynamics are still in place. And Peter says, you still operate by those. And you do so in a Christian way that brings honor and glory to God. So be a good employee. Here's the second part. And not just to the good bosses either. Okay? Not just to the good bosses. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Many employers, masters in the ancient world were, were good and kind and caring, and they took care of their servants who would come under their roof into their household. The Roman law forbid mistreatment. If you got caught, you could be in a great deal of trouble. But nevertheless, that was not a guarantee against corruption or corrupt masters. As a matter of fact, the word here, unjust, is, uh, and I try not to say this, I, I always, um, I try not to say, ooh, this is a bad translation, you know, uh, but, but in this case, it's probably not the best word that could be used. There, there is a word for injustice, it's adikia, it's like the word for righteousness with the, you know, the alpha privative in the front, and kind of negating it. This is not that word. This is a different, um, a much different word. And it means, it's from the word uh, crooked. So you have a, have a master or an employee who's maybe kind of crooked. So maybe a little unethical. Here's some other uh, translations for this, for this word. Um, unreasonable. Not just to the, to the good or the kind ones, but the unreasonable ones. Or perverse is another one. It's kind of maybe a little unethical. Or cruel. A couple of translations translate this word as cruel. And some have harsh. Okay? So this is not giving license to say, if you're going to experience some sort of injustice, just deal it. Deal with it. That's the impression that this translation gives, and I don't think that that's quite accurate. I, I think Peter would be, a, and which he did, was one of the ones that when he experienced an injustice, he was actually uh, very, very willing to, to challenge an injustice that was done to him. Paul did the same thing. So he's, he's not talking about here as an actual like injustice. He's talking about like, Somebody who's crooked or perverse or corrupt or unethical or maybe uh, partial in his treatment between employees. How many of you have ever been into a, you know, a work setting where uh, you might be singled out for mistreatment and you're like, why does the other person that I work with not get singled out for this kind of treatment? Or why does it seem like your boss might be treating this person better than you? Has anybody experienced something like that in the workplace? Right. That's a, that's a better picture, I think, what he's saying here. And so Peter, he is saying, what he's not saying, he's like, oh, just go ahead and experience injustice and don't worry about it. He's saying, here, you're going to experience mistreatment. You're going to be the victim of some sort of evil behavior that's going to take place, that's going to be committed against you by your employer. And this is how you should respond. Okay? This passage is not justifying violence or, or that you should take violence and beatings any more than the previous chapter encourages you to be submissive to the state no matter what, right? As we saw a couple of weeks ago. It does not justify 
uh, abuse or violent treatment any more than the next passage justifies uh, spousal abuse. No, he's talking about what do you do in those situations where it's maybe not criminal, it's maybe not um, something that you have some sort of legal recourse for, but it is nevertheless a mistreatment. This is the setting, and this is what he gives for them to do. He says, you still submit to them. You do this with gentleness, and you do this with respect. So you are to be a good employee, not just to the good bosses either. And then here, number three, expect and endure a measure of mistreatment. Expect and endure a measure of of mistreatment. And this is why I say a measure. Because again, this is not giving license for you to be a doormat. But you are, as a Christian, in the workplace to expect a measure of mistreatment. Notice what it says in verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, you, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Very interesting what he says there. This is a gracious thing. Notice he says it twice. It says at the beginning of 19 and at the end of, of 20. That to endure mistreatment in the workplace, a measure, a measure of mistreatment in the workplace, to endure that is actually a gracious thing. If you don't lash out and immediately claim your rights and your privileges and those sorts of things, but if you're going to deal very respectfully with your masters, maybe it comes up in Uh, your annual review, or the next time you have a meeting with your employer, you can bring these things up and talk about them. Peter's not ruling that out, but he's saying you do this. You maintain that spirit of respect and honor and, um, and gentleness with your employer. And he lays down this principle. He goes, you know, if you get punished for doing wrong, that's normal. That's a good thing. But if you get punished, even if you do good, he again says, this is a gracious thing. And, and in the Greek, the, the word thing isn't even there. It says, and this is a grace. It's a grace. They turned it into kind of an adjective here because they're like, well, that's, what does he mean? That this is a grace in the sight of God that you would experience this. It, in some way, it's uh, demonstrating the grace of God. To experience a measure of mistreatment from your employer and to handle it in the way that Peter is suggesting here demonstrates grace in a couple of ways. One, it's demonstrating your grace to them in this situation. And second, it's demonstrating a, a little bit of God's grace to you to experience mistreatment. Remember the Apostle Paul experienced all sorts of mistreatment, beatings, stonings, dragged out of the the city and beaten and stoned, being locked up in jail and prison and those kinds of things. And he was wondering how he was going to endure. And then the Lord said to him at one moment, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My, my power is made perfect in your weakness. I think Peter is getting something at very similarly here. With This is a gracious thing. This is, this is a grace. This is an opportunity for you to go in the midst of a measure of mistreatment, being the victim of some sort of kind of underhanded or crooked thing done by your employer, that you, at that point, you say, I'm going to give, I'm giving this over to God and that his grace would be sufficient for me in the middle of this. Okay? Now, why is Peter enabled to say that? Well, that gets us to the fourth point, and that is this. Remember Jesus' example. At the beginning, I had said Peter is now really turned into a very practical section here. And so Peter is like, okay, this is how you need to be with the governing authorities over you. This is how you have to be in your households. This is how you have to be in your employer-employee relationships. But it's almost as if Peter can't help himself. He immediately goes theological. He, it's like he's compelled to go, I have to tie this to Christ. Because he goes on this long uh, thing here in verses 21 and 22. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Remember that famous book, In His Steps? The old classic Christian book. And he was, uh, I don't even remember who wrote it. But in his steps, and it was the idea that we were going to go commit every day to follow and think about what would Jesus do. And that turned into a big wristband thing. How many, admit it. How many of you had the WWJD wristbands? Okay. Brandon is vehemently shaking his head. Rosie raising her hand. So did nobody else here have WWJD? Okay. Yeah. So, and that's from this verse, right? So Christ is an example for us. And some have taken this verse and said, see, Jesus is our example. Some have taken this so far to say, Jesus, that's why he came. He came to be an example for how we should live. And then would turn around and deny other parts of Jesus's ministry, like substituting himself as a sacrifice for us. Which I always thought was very funny because of the backdrop for this passage, which is what I want to turn to now says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Turn now to the Ephesian or the Isaiah passage that I had mentioned earlier. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Remember Christ Jesus's example. This passage was written 600, 700 years before Jesus was born. And this is a word from the Lord given to Isaiah. And so these words here, you're going to, um, um, at the beginning, it's the Lord talking. But you can see Isaiah is just echoing this, this message that he'd gotten from the, from the Lord. And the Lord was promising that he was going to send somebody whom he just calls my servant. Notice that it says that in verse 13 of 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely he's mentioned this servant many times in this in isaiah the servant makes an appearance in multiple places but this one is uh truly fascinating behold my servant shall act wisely 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, so this exaltation of this servant of the Lord. But wait a second. If you read a little farther, you notice a little bit of irony here. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Notice the irony? Exaltation through what appears to be something very shameful. And nevertheless, here's the exaltation, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has, been, has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now he talks about the servant here. Verse 2. For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, notice a, a little bit. I want to stop a little bit and say what's happening here. He's writing about a prophecy of a servant who's coming in the future, but he's describing it as an event that's kind of already taken place. He grew up. He, he was. He had no form. He was despised and rejected. Okay, you get the idea here? So it's looking forward to the future about an event so certain that he's writing as if it's already happened. You know, it's like, or he's writing as if it had already happened. Notice verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice the plural, first person plural pronouns here. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And notice this exalted yet humbled and humiliated servant. But this servant is also a sacrificial substitute on behalf of the people of God. Their sin gets put on this servant. And this is in the Old Testament. 700 years before Jesus. It's all, it's, I'd say, it's impossible to not read this passage and read, this is clearly describing Jesus. With his stripes, we are healed. Let me continue on and just read the rest. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, stricken for the uh, transgression of my people. 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. An amazing passage to think about and impossible to read from the lens of the New Testament and not see that this was a prediction of the sufferings and exaltation of Christ that God had planned from beforehand and that that was going to be not only a model for people to follow, but he was going to be the sacrificial substitute for the sins of all people. And this Jesus accomplished. And this forms the backdrop of what Peter is saying in this passage. He says, hey, in the midst, when you're, when you're dealing with a crooked or kind of corrupt boss and you're maybe experiencing some mistreatment, uh, a measure of those things, um, submit to your masters out of reverence, out of reverence to God. Submit to them with respect. Do good even to the, to the crooked ones. Expect to endure a measure of hardship because if you remember, Jesus himself also experienced that hardship. He suffered for you, leaving you an example, Peter says, so that you might follow in his steps. And notice how much of the passage that I just read in Isaiah 53 informs this teaching here. Notice verse 22 in 1 Peter. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Notice Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then 1 Peter, verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, be a good employee and worker. Not just to the good bosses either. You render service to them because, as Paul mentioned in Ephesians 6, that we're rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and as not to a man. I love that verse. When you're doing your job and you experience a measure of mistreatment, you can expect that. And as you're doing your job, remember, you're doing your job not for your just for your earthly employers. You're doing your job. You're serving Christ. And if Christ gave you this example, Peter says, then that's how you should follow at work. You're serving the Lord. So expect a measure of mistreatment. Again, he's not saying if your boss is forcing you to do something illegal or unethical or unrighteous, Peter's no way saying just go along with that. Not at all. He's not talking about extreme situations here. He's talking about under normal conditions. As Christian employees, this is how you should be. And to remember the example of Christ himself, who's the overseer of our souls. So brothers and sisters, be good servants for Christ's sake. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, quite simply, we ask that you would take this passage and you would cause us um, and encourage us and give us the strength to follow it. And as we enter into our workplaces every day, may we remember that we are not serving just our customers, our clients, or our bosses, but that we go to work in this world serving Christ. And may we remember, may we remember that because Christ served us. Through his substitutionary sacrifice for us. Which also makes it an example for us as Peter has said. So God we pray that you help us to do that. In Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Let's brothers and sisters stand for our closing uh, benediction. If you have any uh, questions or any prayer requests or anything, um, be glad to talk with you afterward. And again, reminder that the offering box is, is out there on the table. Um, but my dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.